0: Welcome to Only God Rescued Me, My Journey from Satanic Ritual Abuse. I'm Lisa Meister, your host, and I am bringing back to you my dear friend, Angie. Welcome back. Angie, this is our third time, and you've given me some sort of distress that you can't compress your story into one tidy little bow, one tidy little podcast, but I think that's okay because we can't all do that.
1: Amen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I do admire those that have it packaged. And I think to some degree it's cultural. I'm Anglo-Irish living in the Republic of Ireland. And when I first got diagnosed with DID in Ireland, I don't know, it's about 2006 or I don't know, 12, 8, I don't know. But they immediately said to me, we have no, um, no ability to... Uh, deal with dissociative identity disorder whatsoever so yes that's your diagnosis and no we can provide no services and then I started to research online and check in with um American uh services and ministries and and it kind of culture shocked me it was like because I saw these people speaking so openly and dispassionately about ritual abuse and DID and I had this kind of European response like these people are crazy (laughs) 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 these people are cray cray I have to let the dog in she's whining just let me let the dog in
0: Yeah, sorry, sorry.
1: So it was it, it was the same when I first emigrated to California in 1985, and I I went to a born again Christian church around 1987, and they were worshiping with their arms up in the air and praising God and hugging each other and smiling a lot. Again, my European sensibility was like. Oh, these people are crazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I couldn't. I just couldn't relate. You know. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've been given. I've been. I'm. I'm attending counselling at the moment, and I had hopes that this uh, counsellor, who is doing a PhD, I thought. I thought, okay, he studied. I was led to believe that possibly he was studying DID. But as helpful as he is, he doesn't have a clue. There there is no clue, you know. And and there is no, I mean, I'm grateful and I'm still attending, but it's just basically listening therapy, yeah. just talking therapy, which doesn't help really with DID. Um
0: you know, so I'm I'm
1: interested I'm interested in I'm jumping a bit, but I'm interested in the therapies like Cheryl talked about, you know, creating a safe place for the littles and um a safe place for them to retire, the all you know, the alters to retire that are no longer needed and um Integration to be spontaneous, but not demanded. Um, But at the same time, I still have my guard up where people will say, okay, what do you see now? What do you visualize? And what's Jesus saying? And my guard is up. My trust barrier is up. Thinking, don't make me imagine stuff. you know don't make me in a world of such deception don't make me deceive myself and um, make stuff up and create another reality anyway look that's fine that that's as much pontificating as i'll do i want to i want to briefly talk about you know, I I, I was going to try and wind things up in this interview, but you beautifully told me to be myself and not try to be you or Cheryl or anybody else. And so it might take one more session, but in this part, I wanted to talk about my placements because after the first twelve years trauma, then I started to get placed strategically as did my sisters um, in positions of either power and influence or potential espionage. Okay. Okay, so so, uh, I don't know if uh, I'm not going to go over the last two interviews much except for to say that I under underspoke the amount of violence there was. There was severe violence, uh, crippling violence. Um, And one of the reasons I named my blog, Angela's Cashes, was a take on the film, Angela's Ashes, which was by an Irish person who emigrated to America and then whistle blew on the extreme violence of Um, the Catholic Church in his childhood in Limerick, Angela's Ashes. So, um, yeah, there was extreme violence. But my father came out of the Royal Air Force when I was 12. And I don't believe he was supposed to. It was my mother. I call myself a reluctant monarch. And I think my mother was too. She was a thorn in their side because she never fully submitted to the programming. So um, they they were going to post, they had, as they placed us in Rudlow Manor, RAF Rudlow Manor in Corsham Wiltshire, where there was an underground bunker for the Royal Family and for the members of parliament. And there was also the headquarters of computers across the UK. Um, as they placed us there, they took to sending my father on unaccompanied postings overseas on his own. So, like, they would send him to Mazira in the Persian Gulf, like Iran, on his own for a year. But to my father, as a wounded, narcissistic psychopath, That was torture to him, the the fact that his wife and five daughters were not under his control. And so um, when they gave my father, he came back from the year in Iran, like Mazira, and he gave us beatings and it was trauma and, and put my older sister in care. Sent my second older sister to boarding school, um, you know. Um, but they offered him another year, and then my mother said, "If you, if you take another posting overseas unaccompanied, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving you." Or I don't know what her threat was, but so anyway, he left the air force. So so things actually got a little less sinister. In terms of I suspect that's when the the uh, I suspect that's when the drugging stopped like the organized drugging of us children because it seemed as long as my dad was in the Air Force, we were in a program but when my mother gave my dad an ultimatum and he submitted and left the Air Force. Even though I do believe my father continued with drugging, but I think the orchestrated part of the experiments in terms of drugging may have been over. So then um, so then there were just kind of men in black experiences, and um, the the sense of being placed and and I was thinking about this over the past few days in anticipation of talking to you, and I realised, because I was thinking, like, what's the point of having me be a spy, which I believe is, you know, I was used as a honey trap a bit, but not, not like Kathy O'Brien or Bryce Taylor, not to that extent. I was more used for being placed in influential inner circle places but i was saying like well who was i debriefing to like if i was a spy how were they extracting information from me and then i realized that if i review that there always seemed to be people sent in on me and um i'll give you like, boyfriends and everything. Like, there was there was a boyfriend, even when I was... Even though my father was incredibly strict, and we weren't even allowed out until we were 16, you know, to discos or anything like that. But he let me date an army guy when I was 12. Um... Which was very strange, but I realised that he was a potential handler, and um, and I rejected him. Um, and then even when I left home, like I t- I talked to briefly in the last uh, interview about like suddenly I'd be babysitting for Nancy Astor's niece, the Right Honourable Elizabeth Jolliffe, you know, um, and uh I kept getting placed in influential positions. I was still being groomed, uh, trained as an actress. Um, And literally the weirdest stuff, like people would just appear out of nowhere and invite me for a cheese and wine party, which is a very British thing, right? And because I was already acting in the theatre... In Bradford on Avon in Wiltshire, which is the West Country. Um, so I would just I and I used to escape. Oh, I was abused all through my teens as well. Like consciously. I believe, I believe I was abused from birth, but until my father came out of the Air Force, I believe most of those memories are drug-covered. When we had came out of the Air Force and then came out of the private education system, Um, it was more conscious. So I know my paternal grandfather molested me when I was 11. I know my godmother's husband abused me when I was 12, 13, 14. And I know I was abused on a school exchange to France. I know, uh, you know, I know those things and I've documented them um and and my escape from that was uh, ballet. I used to do ballet, and I because I'd not been allowed to do any physical stuff till I was twelve, so then I compensated and then I did ballet tap uh modern jazz, hockey, karate, netball, blah blah. I just was manically. Uh, active and then I worked 25 hours a week in the restaurant okay. and then my mother was hospitalised and I was raising my sisters and so my life was manic that was kind of um, okay. that was kind of the cover up um, okay. begins it's like you've got more consciousness but i was on this hamster wheel where it was like now i go to school now i do my sports now i raise my children now i work in the restaurant now i blah 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 a uh, kind of manic um and i and i noticed that when i went to america um because it's a different culture again i i i talked to you about that i got i got engineered into america um but when i went there and um i remember you know, I got a part-time job in a in a Irish American restaurant, the Spinnaker in Sausalito in Marin County, and then one of the waiters used to drive up in a Porsche, and have a Rolex, and um, and he was so so accomplished, but he worked eighty hours a week, and the only person that ever saw his Porsche or his Rolex were his co-workers, because he was always working. (laughs) And I just remember thinking, that kind of work ethic is crazy. But anyway, through my teens, I was getting beaten until I was 15. I was traumatised with my mother being grabbed again. Well, she actually volunteered herself. Um, And she got electroshocked three to five times a week. She was still in the programs, you know. And uh, But in a way, after the last beating when I was 15, at which I broke programming seriously, and um, I freaked out and I stopped my father. Even he was trying to join the Freemasons at that time. But the the worshipful master or whatever they, you call them lived next door to us. And when my father beat me really, really violently when I was 15 for smoking cigarettes, um, I flipped out and screamed so much that all the neighbors could hear. And all the like we had a restaurant, 150 seater restaurant, Every all the customers could hear me. And the neighbors could hear me. I just lost it to the point where I don't care if you kill me, you know, come and kill me now. I don't care. And so my father got turned down for the Freemasons. Good trick. I like that. I know. I know. It's like I did him a favor, really. You know, he was furious because um, if he had been a allowed into the freemasons he would have got a full license for the restaurant which means you can have alcohol without staying for a meal and and um but you had to know the right people you had to be in with the freemasons really to get a a full license in that little quaint village and the people that bought the restaurant off him, they got a full license and they sold it for one point four million or something, like they made the big profit because they got the full license. My, you know. So, but anyway, so I'm going to skip through a little bit. So, so I until I was eighteen, I was living above the restaurant, and um, I like I had a. So anyway, I was like, I ran a babysitting agency with five people working for me. And like I said, the clientele were mysteriously upper class. I couldn't understand. And then I would get invited to these weird, um, I believe all my conscious life, I've had people around me inviting me to weird occultic scenarios. And I couldn't figure it out. But anyway, at 18, I was engaged to um I believe a Freemason. Um but my mother decided he wasn't good enough and she told me he was too provincial and she found me a job a hundred miles away in London. And I couldn't understand because like I'd done my like I'd got my high school, you know, A levels. And I'd got a good job with a corporation, Unigate, and I had a good boyfriend. So I thought, okay, you know, this is nice. And then my mother was like, no, uh, she couldn't bear to have us stay around because I think she knew about the abuse. And so she saw us as competition. She got rid of both my older sisters at 14 and I was only allowed to stay till 18 because I was doing well at school. But past that, she was like, no, you've got to go. You've got to go, you know. So she she got me a job in London. And then, and then um, with hindsight, I think, even my first roommate, who was a previous school friend, with hindsight, I think she was, this is how I think, they kept tabs on me, was always having a handler beside me. Yeah. So, even this school friend that said to me, Oh, you can, I've got a room to rent in London. If you get a job in London, you can come and live with me. I'm living in my brother's house and there's a spare room. And, uh, you know, it turned out she was already, or she was soon handled by somebody much older than her who was kind of into polyamory, like he had 13 children by eight women, you know, and he was much older, now the dog he's letting out. Sorry, sorry, this, this dog is just so spoiled. That's it, Ruby. And And similarly, jumping forward, When I moved to California in 1985, um, I was given the address of somebody who would give me somewhere to stay for the first week or two. And with hindsight, I I think maybe she was uh, a compartmentalised handler. And then I advertised for a roommate in Sausalito on a houseboat you know, and I got sent in somebody from a hugely military family whose mother had also been subjected to um, uh, electroshock treatments. And he's like, oh, that's just normal. That's just what they did in the 70s. Don't worry about it. And um he turned out to be like, no, Ruby, no, go to bed. He turned out to be like my houseboat mate. You know, not a lover, just a houseboat mate. And then he became the godfather of my daughter that was born in California. And it was only when I connected with him, I don't know, 20 years later or something. You know the way Facebook allows you to reconnect with long lost, you know, because I've moved so many times. I've lost connection with so many people. Um, and I reconnected with him somewhere around 2016. And I said to him, oh, I'm covering this SRA case in Hampstead in London, and it's crazy, and I'm getting trolled, and blah, blah, blah. And and, and I said, you know, and I said something to him about uh, children being abused. And this guy that I'd shared a houseboat with for a year or something, and uh, he he said something, he said on a Skype call from my kitchen, so it was, he said, but doesn't everybody have a fantasy about having sex with children? And I just, my jaw dropped. And I thought, how have I known you on and off for decades and shared a houseboat with you and never, ever suspected that you would say such such a horrendous thing? Doesn't everybody fantasise about sex with children? And I never spoke to them since. I literally just, I just, I just said, no, they don't. But it made me realise that... Somebody said to me, "If you are, if you are an MK Ultra survivor, you need to review your past and look at who was around you and who, who were your handlers."
0: Absolutely. You know, in in SRA as well. You know, both of them. Everybody is suspect from your past. I know. survivor I know. who just told me her lifelong friends, both of them, turned out to be. Called active, and she did not know, you know, and just the trauma of that to her. How did she not see that?
1: And, and and that's what people feel is the shame and the guilt of. How did I not see that? How did I not see that? How did I not see that? And and I'm experiencing survivor guilt. I don't I don't even know a word to use but like my perpetrator, perpetrator trafficking, one of my perpetrators, multiple perpetrators, but my abusive trafficking father died in July and I'm feeling shame at exposing. It's like this, I've done it before, but there's this shame of how could you wash the family laundry in public? How could you hang out your dirty laundry for everybody else to see? And how could you speak ill of the dead? And how could you bring the family's name down into the gutter? All of that stuff is just torturous, you know?
0: Well, that's programming in and of itself. You know, that's my mom in my head. You talk too much. This is a family thing. Don't tell anybody. It was a constant through the years. It just never stopped.
1: Yeah, it's like you're a disgrace and you're attention-seeking. Yeah. And you're bringing disgrace on the family name and you've raked the family name through the mud. And I remember the first time I disclosed in front of a hospital professional about, you know, in 2003, um, the psychiatrist, the only time I've ever been in a psych unit, the psychiatrist agreed to have my parents come in and I challenged my father about one of the times he molested me and he didn't deny it. He just chastised me afterwards saying, in my day, we never threw mud at our parents' door. You know, we would never even dream of throwing mud at our parents' door. And it shamed me didn't even go to the, didn't even go to the bother of saying that didn't happen or she's lying, just...
0: Which says just a lot. Saying. A non-denial yeah. says a lot.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that when, when you and your husband were breaking down, making sense of when you started to confront your family and the family and the other named people, you have to analyse the details. And I'm kind of disappointed that the psychiatrist didn't log that and say, do you know what? She made a a tangible, serious allegation of abuse when she was 12, and he didn't deny it. They didn't. And when I've tried to requisition my medical notes, they don't, they're obstructive. Like even a police, I had a police investigation that went on for six months from the UK because I was also implicating the Royal Air Force, the military. And when they contacted, I signed a waiver form, giving them permission to access all my medical notes, including psychiatric, psychological, whatever. And the Irish health service people refused to hand them over. And when I challenged them later, when I engaged with them a few years later and said why the hell did you refuse to honor my waiver that i signed saying i want the police to have my medical notes why did you obstruct that and they said oh well you know we would like to have seen you a few times and um suggested some retractions and made sure you were protecting yourself in what you disclosed. It's like, you lying bastards. You weren't protecting me at all.
0: I went back in mind; They didn't exist.
1: Yeah, no, the first 12 years, the REF said they have no records for me.
0: They're not there.
1: The first 12 years where I wasn't allowed to do sports and in hospital more than out, and blah, 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 nearly died, da, da, da. No records.
0: And my police report doesn't exist. And the investigation it, doesn't exist. I mean, it's just been wiped.
1: It, we're very blessed. These
0: people and what they can accomplish is staggering. It, it's
1: sinister. It's horrible. And it, shows, have...
0: and it shows that they're guilty. Because if they're not guilty, this stuff would be there.
1: Absolutely. Like, why should it be hidden? Why? Why should I have memories of being immobile and memories of being you know I have scars all over my body I was I don't know who it was I was listening to I was listening to somebody it might have been on your channel as well that had x-rays that finally proved her memories you know and like I have like I'll show you just an example right This, this is just a simple one can you see my arms wow
0: Yeah.
1: I'll talk again so it comes up. Right. See that? Yeah. That's like that all the time. There's no explanation for that.
0: No explanation. Not for parents.
1: No. And then I have, um, and one of my sisters have that kind of scarring on her arms too. And then, I don't know if it's crazy. It is crazy to try. Anyway. I have a scar on my leg that looks like a fully definitioned bite mark. And I've been to a consultant twice to see if it's ringworm or roundworm or what the hell is that on my leg. And they can't explain it. They've said, oh, no, it's not contagious. It's not roundworm. Just use uh, uh, theatre makeup to cover it. And then I have little scars you can't see them on this but i know for a fact my mother had electroshock treatment but i can't prove it for myself but i have strange little scars in different places that would indicate to me that probably electroshock was part of the therapy you know and um and and unfortunately Medical abuse has continued throughout my life. I, I, I nearly got killed in 2014 in the most horrific, oh, catastrophic, abusive, shocking medical surgery scenario that was supposed to be a two-day hospital admission for keyhole surgery and turned into six weeks of hospital, open surgery, open wound, returned home, Um, tumors infections and corrective surgery needed like and then a drug given to me ciprofloxacin which uh, damaged all my joints so that i now have arthritis and joint issues like i'm only 65 but i i am disabled i'm permanently disabled i'm i'm um horrendously arthritic and like I broke my ankle after that medication. I twisted my knee, I pulled my shoulder, I uh, I feel like I've been tagged. And you sound like, well I think some people, you know, it sounds crazy when you say I'm targeted. I there's a file on me that I'm I'm listed. Um I'm marked. But sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's true. Like I've had, I've had so much "quote unquote" bad luck in, in hospitals. Even with the birth of my eldest son um, in Ipswich Hospital in England, um, I I I ripped. I I'm sorry to be graphic. It's female talk, but I, I tore extensively in that birth and I was I needed an episiotomy they call it where they stitch you afterwards and a doctor came to stitch me and he injected me with local anaesthetic and by then my husband had gone home because he thought oh well the baby's born everything's fine I've got to work tomorrow so he went home and the doctor came to stitch me up and then he got called away to a twin birth emergency, and he didn't return for about three and a half hours, but he didn't re-administer any local anaesthetic, and he just stitched me up like a piece, like a cadaver. And, And he did it in such a way that it was later described as being trussed up like a turkey And I've heard of women having that done to them as um, female F M G female gentle F G M female gentle mutilation, where they sew you up so tight that it's uh, it's it's horrendous. Anyway, I I couldn't urinate for five days after the birth, or after the I screamed worse with pain at him stitching me without anaesthetic and the midwife was screaming at him and saying stop 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 and he wouldn't stop and uh, and then when he left she said to me if you want to take court proceedings i'll i'll back you all the way and she she just was she was so horrified at what had just been done to me and then i couldn't i couldn't urinate or walk for 5 days after the birth and that's when I got re examined in a different hospital, and they said, You've been trussed up like a turkey, and they had to take all the stitching out and do it again. But I just feel as if, if I'd had one bad hospital experience since my father left the Air Force, I would think, Oh, well, stuff happens. Do you know what I mean? You can have a bad experience. It's, it's, but... I
0: wonder if we are marked in some way so that when we go into hospitals. Yeah. That culture doctors No.
1: I think they have our name on a list. I do. I really do. And if they're linked together, whether it's by Freemasonry or whether it's by, you know, secret societies in Ireland, it tends to be more like the Knights of Columba, the Knights of Malta, the Knights of, you know, the Red Cross, or the secret societies can be all sorts. But I do think, especially. I do think they have some kind of, and it's much more likely in this digital age that we are marked. We are marked as previous subjects and likely to blab, you know, like so in danger of disclosing, you know.
0: Which is why these podcasts are important because we can get our voice out there and they can't take it away. I mean, they yeah. can block us, they can take it down, but we can put them back up. Yeah, and we can keep getting it out. And we are connecting. And and the thing that is fascinating, because like I've got an investigative reporter, and he sent me there's um Utah case right now where a sheriff uh-huh. you're aware of that. So a sheriff yeah. is doing an Sra investigation and they're starting to make some um they're starting to arrest some people in this wow. investigation. He sent me uh, through the Freedom of Information Act. He was able to get police reports of the victim statements. He sent them to me and he said, would you read through these and tell me what comes up? You know, is anything stick out to you? So I read through these reports. It's like, well, what sticks out to me is that it's unremarkable. Wow. Every statement in every person that I interview and every interview that I hear everybody's the same you're not you know it's not like and then an alien showed up
1: it's a playbook it's a textbook isn't it it's just they, they seem to have a textbook playbook
0: so like for the listeners they're like okay this one's out there this one's strange it's not So what you're telling me is the exact same thing I am hearing and and I am saying, and it's my experience and it's your experience. There's way too many things that are the same. And and it all comes down to that our parents and there are elites and the the leaders in the communities and the leaders of the world have power and they are using it to abuse kids. To dissociate kids, they're doing ritual sacrifices. They're doing MK Ultra programming, Monarch programming, Spin programming, all these things. And there are some of us that are willing to get out and that are willing to speak. And we're yeah. getting targeted, and we're getting whatever. But we're still going yeah, to get out there and do it.
1: Yeah, it, because, because we're going to die. We're yeah. going to die somehow. So we might as well die speaking. Rather than be silent, you know.
0: Right. I mean, we could remember middle, and how many um, people are dying in it. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I'm, you know, but I'm also talking to moms with kids who are in it, trying to get them out. There are kids in it right now.
1: Yeah. Cannot yeah.
0: get out. You no, know, I believe
1: you. I believe you. Kids, I you know,
0: society won't listen. If they won't listen we cannot get the kids that are going through it now out of it.
1: Yeah. We- Sorry, I still have addiction issues. I smoke, but I know I know it's to me it's like the closest like uh, I it broke my heart to watch family members, the next generation go into abusive relationships and no matter what i said it's like if if somebody say just if you even say if somebody's just even a domestic violence uh, uh, victim but if if they're not ready no matter how many times you try and rescue them they go back they go back and i've experienced at least two family members going having woken up and seen the truth and then gone back. And that, that was something else. I think Cheryl her interview touched me profoundly, but she talked about having co-written a book with her sister. And then her sister went back to the cult narrative and denied everything and denounced the book. And um, and that that was the my sister that I believe was murdered, was starting to deprogram. And she said to me, "How come every time we visit, I feel like I'm having a nervous breakdown?" And uh, uh, and it was because the simplest conversation would come up, and then the the memories, the flashbacks would come. and then she'd have a partner, I'd have a partner and then we both would be traumatized um, with the jigsaw pieces. Fitting together, you know, and um, and for the first time, I felt like I've got an ally. One of my sisters is remembering as well, and so we might be able to get to the bottom of this, you know. And then, and then she was dead. Then she was dead. And even, even another, my niece, one of my nieces, was deprogramming hugely, and she came out of a twenty-year abusive cult relationship and disclosed like crazy the same as my daughter came out of a seven-year abusive relationship disclosed like crazy but then went back to sleep again then went back into I don't like being a whistleblower I don't like being the estranged member of the family I don't like being left out of wedding invitations like there was a recent wedding where a convicted pedophile walked somebody down the aisle in top hat and tails at a society wedding he's a convicted pedophile he's been all over the newspapers and yet certain members of my family attended that wedding and acted like it was a society wedding which was splendid and what a good job angie wasn't there uh, or well, the, so, the
0: whistleblower is the bad guy and the pedophile is the good guy and they will stand by them and protect them to the end.
1: It's just sad to me. And, and and I want to move past the grief part of feeling excluded and grieving that, oh, I didn't get invited to that wedding. Of course I didn't. I wouldn't have pretended everything was normal while well, a pedophile walked his daughter down the aisle at a society wedding. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been smiling and wearing a hat. You know, so there's this thing of coming to terms with being rejected. But the thing I wanted to cover in this session, and I am I keep finding myself long winded with you, but I hope it will be helpful. But what I wanted to cover was in my 20s, like I talked about my teens where I had a babysitting agency and it was Lord this and Lady that and blah, blah, blah. And then and then I got sent to London then I got recruited to a bank, which turned out to be run by the cia which was bcci bank of credit and commerce international and the president was one of the council of a thousand and um you know i found myself uh, you know being a pa for somebody that was up for secretary general of the united nations and um and then i found and then when i I worked at that bank for three years and the corruption was such that I thought, I don't like this. I want to go to university. So at 21, I went to university. Like as a mature student, having worked for three years and they engineered, they engineered. I was being puppeteered all the way along. They tried to puppeteer me into Cambridge University and I always called myself the reluctant monarch because I kept rejecting the programming like my mother did. I kept rebelling. And so because they couldn't get me to go to um, Cambridge, they got me to go to Warwick, and then they even engineered me into what I studied. I had a professor uh, recruit me. He said, oh, I've just got funding to do... a, a." Breaking, you know, cutting edge course in American literature, and I'd be honored if you would change your major and come and be a part of this. And then they tried to send me to Duke University on an exchange program, which I escaped, you know. But and then and then that university had been um, a place of experiments from the sixties. Like there had been a huge scandal at the University of Warwick where the staff discovered they'd been under a surveillance experiment with none of them having been informed. So all their rooms were bugged, all the lecture, every the whole university was bugged and they weren't informed. And there was a huge backlash and strike. But the, the last presidential appointment that Bill Clinton attended was at that university with Tony Blair. He did a. That was his last foreign, uh, you know, appointment before he finished being president of the United States. Was at my university, so just, you know, and then and then I I um, so I was at that university. They I got engineered into being vice president of the students' union and leading um leading an occupation of the Senate house for 10 days uh, and that spread all across the UK and it was like I kept finding myself in these situations like how did, how did that happen and then, and then I and then I ended up moving to California. you know I lived in Spain for a year. when the Falklands War broke out, I, I was living with an American starlet. Whose name originally was Patricia Wilder, and she was the sidekick of Bob Hope, who's huge in MKUltra. She was his uh, foil in a comedy radio show, Patricia Wilder and Bob Hope. She was also engaged to the millionaire that was own Bloomingdale's or something. She was it. She was widowed at fifteen to a millionaire. Airplane guy, but anyway, for about her fourth or fifth marriage, she got exported along with Grace Kelly and Lucille Ball. She got exported to Europe and married off to Austrian royalty. Like Grace Kelly got married into Monaco royalty. Well, at the same time, Patricia Wilder, who went by the name Honeychild, she got married to and all this is out there, it's all evidence, it's all absolute fact, Uh, she got married to His Royal Highness Prince Alexander von Hohenlohe, and they lived in Marbella. And uh, I ended up in Marbella in 1982, and I got recruited to go and live with her and ghostwrite her life story. And I lived there for a few months in the Marbella Club and she was disclosing to me all of her life. And it was shocking. I didn't even know what MK Ultra was. But when we sent three chapters and an outline to Doubleday's publishers, the, the family said to her, if you publish, you'll be disinherited. And sadly, she didn't want to lose her lifestyle, because in the meantime, her husband had died. Prince Prince Alex von Hohenlohe had died. And so she said to me, "I'm sorry, angie, i can't I can't publish. They're going to cut me off financially." Yeah. So there's much more I want to tell you, and I really did want to wind up in victory tonight, but if you've got the patience and the time, I think there's one more show to do because I've had shocking news this week about the Hampstead Satanic Ritual Abuse case, um, which the UK mainstream media are ramping up and spending hundreds of thousands to yet again discredit. It's like the Franklin case or the, the... the preschool um, Presidio or, you know, all the major cases where they've been covered up. It's like um, the mainstream media have flown to America to interview a colleague of mine that worked on exposing the Hampstead case. They've flown to Morocco and allegedly paid people to speak badly of the stepfather who to whom the children disclosed and and it's ramping up again it's ramping up again so if you have if you and your listeners have the time and the patience i think we need one more show to, to to um to wind this up
0: i'd love that thank you
1: yeah i'm so i'm so glad to speak to you it's not it's, I do get usually quite anxious, but it's actually a pleasure to disclose to you thank you for your your listening.
0: Oh, I appreciate it, and I know my listeners appreciate it and it's you know I know it's a big story it's, and I'm sorry, it doesn't need
1: to be big. Story. I hope I'm not a narcissist, you know no, we you're can not. Get, i hope it, not
0: it It takes a while to get a story and and put it together. You know when i was writing my memoir it took me years to figure out how do i put it together where do you start because it's not a chronological story in the sense that you would look at it because it's a start and stop it's like okay i'm telling you this but now i got to go back here to tell you but when you're getting a flashback it's a piece here then it's a piece you know several years down then it's a piece several years back and it takes a long time to put it together, which you're still doing. You're yeah. still trying to get a timeline together.
1: And that's the nature of dissociation. It's like right. um, if you could tie it up in a in a neat. I'm suspicious of people that make it all make it all look too neat and tidy, because uh, the nature of dissociation is that everything's compartmentalized.
0: Right. Yeah. No.
1: So okay. So so I just want to pray. I I just want to pray Father God I thank you for Lisa I thank you for her audience I thank you for the people that have spoken already some of whom have deeply, like I was very traumatised and triggered but in a good way if that's, it makes sense but it's like you can't run away from these memories you have to embrace them and process them. I was traumatised by the interview with uh, Cheryl and I should have made notes really but I just thank you for people that are coming forward and speaking and I thank you that even uh, I just thank you that it's t- a time of disclosure and truth and I pray that we do something with it that actually protects children going forward There's no point at all in people disclosing if it doesn't make a difference. So I just pray with all my heart that our disclosures change. Like I was really concerned, I'll just say this and it might be controversial. When President Donald J. Trump said he was advocating the death penalty for drug dealers, my thought was that will increase child trafficking because it's already rumoured abroad that child trafficking is more profitable than drug trafficking. And if the death penalty is in place for drug traffickers, but not for paedophiles, hello, you're going to see an even more tragic increase in human trafficking, child sex trafficking. So I pray against that, Lord. I just pray that not our will but yours be done and that you dispatch legions and myriads of angels so that what we disclose makes a difference, that it's not just a gory... Because I heard Hillary Clinton was hugely excited at kathy o'brien's disclosures especially when she did disclosures of mutilation and i just bind that in jesus name i bind it in jesus name i bind it in jesus name and i pray that every word we speak and everywhere we place our feet is taken for the kingdom of god in jesus name amen Amen. All right, my dog's being very naughty, <laughs> you lots, and let's do one more and put it to bed next week. And thank you so much for your patience.
0: Thank you, Angie. Thank
1: you. All right. God bless. God
0: bless.